Welcome to Mission Driven, a conversation about how startups leverage their social mission as competitive advantage. Mission Driven is hosted by Better Ventures, a seed stage venture fund in Oakland, California, backing entrepreneurs using science and technology to address the world's biggest challenges. You can find us on the web at better.bc and on Twitter at Better Ventures. I'm Rick Moss from Better Ventures, and I'm super excited to have Heidi Patel here today. We're going to go deep on gender in technology and venture. As many of you may know, there is a severe underrepresentation problem in tech and in venture. A few stats, about 12% of decision makers at venture capital firms are women, and the percentage of partners is actually much lower. About 12% of venture capital funds go to teams with at least one female founder, just 12%. And get this, for women-led startups, they get 0.32% of funds. And for Black women-led startups, they get 0.0006% of funds. Heidi has a platinum resume as a mission-oriented investor. She's a managing director at Rethink Impact, uh, which is out to fix this problem. They are backing women leaders who are using technology to tackle some of the world's greatest challenges in digital healthcare, in education technology, in economic empowerment, and in sustainability. Once you change who the check writers are, that can have tremendous effects across the market. And I think increasingly, you know, entrepreneurs will, you know, realize they have a choice, that they don't have to go to a firm that doesn't look like them, that doesn't sound like them, that may not understand the problem that they're trying to solve. They may have more choices and more options than them. It's the largest impact venture firm in the U.S. that's dedicated to investing in female tech entrepreneurs. They just raised a new $182 million second fund that brings their total assets under management to nearly $300 million. They've backed over 25 companies since starting in 2016, focused on gender diverse teams. And its investor base, the people who invest into their fund, is now 65% female. Prior uh, to doing this, Heidi was president of New Island Capital Management. She holds an undergraduate degree from Princeton and an MBA from Stanford. She co-teaches Investing for Good at Stanford Business School. She serves on the investment committee for Stanford Business School Student Impact Fund. She's an advisor to my firm, Better Ventures, and she's an active member of All Raise, which is a nonprofit that's out to fix the problem of underrepresentation in the venture and technology communities. Welcome, Heidi. Thank you so much, Rick. Great to be here. All right. We've known each other for quite some time now. I'm trying to think. We have. I think we met when you were at Pacific Community Ventures, right. but we certainly met at New Island. And, and I <laughs> I remember coming to pitch you for our first fund, uh, which, you know, it's always hard to raise your first fund. And that conversation right. didn't go so well, but we made it. <laughs> we're both standing. <laughs> right. Exactly. Let's start in with your new fund, Rethink2. You're now the biggest yep. in your category. How did that fundraise go, particularly given the adverse environment of a pandemic? Yeah, you know, I think we are very, very grateful. We did the first close on our fund too on February 20th. So I feel as though we dodged a bullet on that one. Um, but I think, you know, like anything when it comes to fundraising or scale, differentiation really helps. And I think what, you know, what set us apart really was, was the scale. You know, as you mentioned, we're the largest in the country now doing what we do, which is solving the capital gap for female tech founders tackling issues related to one or more of the UN SDGs. 
Um, in addition to some of the stats that you shared, a stat that we really focus on is that less than 3% of all dollars within venture flow to female CEOs. There's a lot of different ways to do gender investing. And we happen to focus on that CEO seat as being a real lever point for power and decision-making and influence. And that 3% number honestly hasn't really budged in 20 years, right? You know, despite the fact that there's all sorts of data out there, you know, whether it's from the IFC reporting that, you know, gender balanced teams tend to have higher valuation increases from round to round. BCG doing a report talking about how startups that are founded and co-founded by women generate 10% of more revenue over time per dollar invested. So there's opportunity, there's growth, there's valuation, there's capital efficiency, yet this 3% number is really, really sticky. A lot of people like to talk about the pipeline problem, right? There's just, I don't see enough women. There aren't enough women out there, you know, running tech companies. And the data just tells a different story. You know, Amex reports that women are starting businesses at two times the rate of men. And 40% of all businesses in the tech industry are actually led by women. So the opportunity is massive. It's just going incredibly overlooked. And that's, that's where we come in. Yeah. And good thing you're doing it in other firms as well, because it's, it's a huge problem. So when you're fundraising, did you find that being women yourselves and or focusing on uh, female founders, was that an advantage or a disadvantage or both at different times? It, you know, for us, it was absolutely an advantage. It really unlocked sources of capital that, frankly, would not have been available to your conventional VC. You know, and that's and that's fair, right? Because the vast majority of the entire industry, you know, are focused on male-led firms, male-led strategies, male-led startups. So, the fact that this is unlocking small pools of capital is is a really good thing, right? And so I think what's interesting about a strategy like ours is that it is impact-focused, right? So we appeal to investors, families, foundations, platforms across the aisle because of our returns orientation. I think we're really, we're showing with the data, with the background, with our track record from Fund One, that impact and gender and returns can all reinforce each other. They can actually go hand in hand. So what we're seeing is that Folks that are really philanthropic, like a strategy like ours, that helps to extend what they're already doing on the grant-making side. Folks in the other states, you know, they, they like what we're doing because it's, it's tackling social and environmental challenges without having to use government dollars. So there's something to like on both sides. And so we actually have investors from 40 different states. And as you mentioned, 65% are women. And the reason that's so important is that, you know, I think you've probably seen these stats that women will control two-thirds of the wealth in our country by 2030, which you know is actually right around the corner. And they are also massively underinvested. 70 cents of every dollar held by a woman sits in cash. And women really care about, they tend to really care about what's happening in the world. And they want to use those dollars to push change forward, whether it's closing gaps for women, closing gaps for minorities, addressing climate change, addressing economic empowerment. So there's a lot of pieces to our story that no matter kind of where you sit on the political spectrum, the economic spectrum, that you can grab onto. And I think that really helped us as we were going out and trying to raise funds too. And wouldn't you say, or maybe you did say this in a slightly different way, that that there's just a straight economic argument for investing in a fund like yours and in the startups you're investing in? Because if, if it's true that, you know, there are at least 50% of women CEOs that are just as good or better than anybody else, or in the, some of the stats you cited, you know, better, 
And yet they're only, you know, they're only 3% of the female CEOs that this is a sort of market arbitrage opportunity. And there's lots of money to be made, whether you care about, you know, first about the impact or not. I think that's right. I mean, I think when we're looking to the market and we see there's no pipeline problem, women are great leaders, they're, ca- they're running capital efficient businesses, women tend to start and run businesses focused on these impact problems, which by the way, you know, these are global challenges. So they represent big global markets. That's a really interesting combination for an investing landscape. And, you know, I think probably talk later about what this means for talent. And you know, where does the best talent want to go? They want to go work at companies like this and work on products that are meaningful to them. These are the ingredients for a really interesting investing strategy. I think what you know, the challenge is that VC has not been built to recognize that opportunity. It hasn't been built to recognize the patterns that that set of opportunities represent. And that's where we come in. We're pattern matching from scratch, and that's our edge. And there are other gender-focused firms out there. And you are, as you mentioned, the biggest. You're one of the, the first and, and clearly a leader. How do you see yourselves fitting in kind of among all the other firms, some of the other firms that are also focusing on similar things? Yep. There's a beautiful thing happening at the seed stage. What we're seeing now is this real growth in female-led funds, funds focused on women, funds focused on impact at the seed stage. So I think the market is actually starting to get more and more comfortable with women and impact entrepreneurs starting businesses and raising you know, $2 million, $3 million. Like we're seeing the needle start to move there, right? We're also seeing something on the other end of the spectrum with strategies like you know, Bain Double Impact, TPG rise, you know, you may you know, you even have a KKR impact or an Apollo impact, right? Focused on lower middle market or or big late stage or control investing, but there is this complete chasm in the middle. It's just a desert in the middle. That's Series A and B. That's Series A. That's Series B. And so when women are, you know, standing up, running not consumer but enterprise focused tech companies. And they're, you know, I want to raise $8 million. I want to raise $10 million. It can be like crickets. So only 5% of all seed funded tech companies led by women ever go on to raise a Series B. And so men are crossing that chasm at three times the rate. So what's really interesting, though, is that if you look at the data at the Series C, that's when the gender bias and this gender gap actually starts to fall away. Because that's when investors are making decisions not based on these kind of qualitative patterns, but on data and on metrics. Because there is data at that point. There is data at that point. So our perspective was if you can come in at institutional scale, you know, lead Series A, Series B, write four to seven million dollar checks, sit on boards, price deals, you know, that is the need and that's what we're good at. That's our that's our background. And so that's what we have as a focus for the fund. Yep. And I've seen that in action. And so talk about in your portfolio, are there one or two examples of companies in your portfolio where you see them particularly leveraging gender as an advantage? I think so. Whether, whether it's gender you know, in, in the product or whether it's the impact piece, I think one of our common portfolio companies, Ketos, which is um, providing water intelligence for industry by doing real-time water quality monitoring um, for large industrial and ag and commercial customers led by this absolutely amazing female founder. 
she's amazing. Her story as an immigrant founder is amazing. And the company that she's building is deep tech, super interesting, high growth software business. She is pulling talent from really big established firms, from very cushy jobs, high salaries, low risk. She's pulling incredible talent. And that talent is coming to join her little water startup because she's amazing as a female founder. And the impact that they're having on water quality and preventing water pollution is really alluring. And so we're seeing people leave these very cushy jobs to work nights and weekends, to take potentially a lower salary because they see that financial and that impact upside potential to be enormous. And they just want to be part of something like that. I think that's one example. And before you move on, so what do you think it is about Mina, because you and I have both seen her in, in action, that enables her to create that kind of magnetism about herself and the, you know, that that magnetic attraction to her and to the company? Because I know that she has quite a few women working for her and also quite a few men. And so she's able to attract really top people kind of across the board. Do you have a sense for like, where's that coming from? Yeah. I mean, she's just, you know, it's sort of like you're a Hollywood agent and you're spotting talent. I mean, she has just got that it factor, right? Just a really, really powerful magnetic, as you described it, person. Part of it's her personal story. You know, she came to the United States from India um, when she was 19 years old, one-way ticket to get a master's degree in engineering in Texas, $400 in her pocket. And look where she is now, you know, having raised, you know, $30 million, close to $30 million for this water just close her series B. So she's, you know, one of that 5% that, you know, <laughs> cleared the chasm, cleared the gap and got out of that series territory. So part of it's just that piece. Part of it is that she's got the chops. You know, she spent years working, cumulus networks, big switch networks, Cisco. I mean, she, has got, she has got the chops. She knows she's been an engineer. She's been in sales and strategy. She knows how to walk the talk. Um, and I think that she inspires deep, deep respect. Just in her versatility, there's nothing that she asks her team to do that she can't do or hasn't done or isn't doing herself. And so there's a real authenticity there that I think people are really drawn to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agree. Okay, and you were about to talk about another example, I think. Yeah, so I think with gender in particular, you know, the press loves, in many ways, <laughs> the female founder right now, particularly the female impact founder. And I think that's what, landed Sally Krawcheck from Elvest on the cover of Money Magazine. I think what was unique about Sally's experience with that is that she said, this is not about me, Sally Krawcheck. You know, yes, I'm one of the most senior, most women ever on Wall Street. I started Elevest to tackle the investing gap for women, which is this, you know, quote I've mentioned before, which is 70 cents of every dollar that a woman holds sits in cash. They're massively underinvested. So by the time you know women die, they're two to three times more likely than men to die in poverty because of this underinvestment problem. When coupled with the wage gap, creates a really a, you know really bad issue. Um, so when she was asked to be on the cover of this magazine, she said, "I want to bring my team." Said, okay, Sally, <laughs> whatever you want. What the result was is that they had a pregnant woman on the cover of a business magazine for the first time ever. So she had her head of product very visibly pregnant sitting next to her. And so, you know, guess what? Not only does that, you know, cover land with a splash, but every woman who, you know, has a 401k or wants to start saving for a house or saving to start a business or saving for her kids wants to get an account with Elevest. Every financial advisor that's sort of tired of that industry that is so male dominated wants to work on the Elevest platform. And so I What's really interesting is that, you know, women 
can grab these headlines and grab these covers and grab this press coverage. And that can help with sales. It can help with hiring, help with marketing. It has these, these really positive effects. I think the, the flip side is that we're also, I think, seeing in the press this inevitable takedown of the female founder. We, we've seen that coverage. And I think you know, there's a real double standard when it comes to coverage of women and, and the expectations and standards that women are held to. And the questions that are asked. Yeah. The questions that are asked, the way they are described, even expectations of, of folks that go work for a woman and how and why that should be totally different than any work experience they've had before. And when it doesn't live up to the perfect dream, I think the crash is that much harder. So there's definitely two sides to the coin, but there can be some incredible benefits along the way. And say a bit about Sally. She was chief financial officer of Citibank. She was CEO of City with Wealth Management, CEO of Merrill Lynch Wealth Management. I and mean, this is a super powerful New York banker. And now she's running a startup for targeting women and investing. Why is that? Well, she tried to get all her former employers to do it. <laughs> she brought the idea to them. She said, look, Meryl, our, you know, our logo is a bowl. <laughs> Does that right. <laughs> to women? Like, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think she saw the opportunity. She was a loyal employee, like many women leaders are. And she said, let's build this here. Everybody said no. The opportunity, if anything, is just getting bigger with the transfer of wealth that we are witnessing right now. And she was also looking at the data of what happens when you compound the wage gap with the underinvestment gap and seeing what that's doing to our households and to our women. And so she, you know, she had no choice but to go and do it on her own. And that's how LFS was born. Wow. And um, I'm looking at their logo now. It's sort of like a soothing, sophisticated, modern, sleek EV. That's right. And it, its tagline is a financial company built by women for women. We're on a mission to get more money into the hands of women. So kind of the opposite of where she came from. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's awesome. Let's broaden the conversation just a little bit from gender to kind of diversity in tech and in venture. You know, a lot's been going on in our society around race and and uh, people marching in the streets, Black Lives Matter movement. How are you seeing the, you know, and I think there's a real kind of, you know, serious consideration being given to things that weren't before in, in the VC industry and in the tech industry, yet we have so far to go. <laughs> so can you talk about how it's evolving? Absolutely. So I, I, you know, I think for the first time, more and more questions are being asked. And I think there are some very hard truths that are staring us in the face in this industry and, and you know, within tech and VC more broadly. It goes way beyond some of the statistics that you shared, you know, at the top of our conversation around percentage of, of dollars going to Latinx women or percentage of dollars going towards Black women. It's not just that they're not getting funded. It's that their ideas aren't getting funded. The problems that they see aren't getting addressed. Communities that they want to benefit aren't being served. And so the ripple effects of not empowering and providing resources to more diverse voices around the table is profound. And I think people are waking up to that. I, you know, what I desperately hope is that all of these pledges and office hours and metrics and <laughs> that a lot of VCs and others are, you know, tweeting about, I want to see that translate to, you know, checks written, dollars invested. I think what's great is that we're seeing more and more diverse voices starting up funds. I think that's, that's a whole other conversation about what needs to happen to make that actually work. But once you change who the check writers are, that can have tremendous effects across the market. 
And I think increasingly, you know, entrepreneurs will, you know, realize they have a choice that they don't have to go to a firm that doesn't look like them, that doesn't sound like them, that may not understand the problem that they're trying to solve. They may have more choices and more options than that. That's the ideal. And so, you know, things are, I think, really hard questions are being asked. I think the trends are positive. And I think there's massive opportunity to really move the needle. And I'm optimistic we can get there. But we have a really, really long way to go to turn intention into action. You mentioned it's not just that women are not getting funded, but the things they care about. So talk about that a bit. So are you investing in things that you think where the the customers are women and and things that women care about? Like in the case of Sally Krawcheck and Elevest, of course, that's targeting women. It's a women, it's a product for women. In the case of Ketos, it's a, you know, industrial, commercial, municipal uh, water management company that, you know, really it's run by a woman, but isn't serving women per se. How do you think about that? We are not a femtech fund. What we're trying to do is find the very best next generation of entrepreneurs that we think are going to create massive businesses that might coincide with certain women. You know, we are 50% of the planet. (laughs) Yeah, we are not 50% of the attention paid when it comes to tech innovation. I think another really good example um, is Care Academy, where it was led by Impact America. We were the second largest investor in that round. And say this is in-home care for, is it seniors? Can you say a bit about it? It's the training and compliance platform of choice for the in-home care market, which is, you know, a hundred billion dollar market, right? And growing quickly. It's highly fragmented. It has not been optimized by tech. There are over 500,000 care agencies in the country. There are more than 2 million home-based care workers who on average are making, you know, 13 to $20,000 a year. They are majority low-income women of color. Okay. So, Using technology to help all of these agencies run better, have dramatically higher retention when it comes to care workers, providing care workers a means to gain more skills and to improve their economic position. This is sort of an impact, you know, triple whammy. Yeah, I'll say uh, a rare triple whammy. Right. Black black female founder, right? Her parents are from Nigeria. And I think what's particularly interesting about this story and what really sticks out is that there is, you know, incredible founder market fit. So Helena Wilson, who's one of the co-founders alongside Maduri Betty, was putting herself through the master's program in education at Harvard while working on the side as a home-based care worker. So is there anyone on the planet better positioned <laughs> to launch yeah. an ed yeah. business focused on care workers? Like, No, there's not. <laughs> the one. <laughs> yeah. But right. that is not a classic profile where a venture capitalist is like, oh yeah, I get it. <laughs> Training for home-based care. You know, oh, you were a care worker. You must make an amazing CEO. Like that, that is not a set of, you know, that is not a pattern that a lot of people are going to recognize as being a right, you know, set of ingredients for an incredible company. That's why I think, you know, the funds like ours that are looking at things like that and seeing, wow, this is a massive, fast-growing industry that, by the way, COVID is accelerating the growth. Like already people do not, you know, are, are wanting to age in place, right? They're wanting to get care at home. And now if you have a choice to not go into a nursing home setting, but have a choice to stay at home, you're going to make that choice now, particularly because of COVID. So Caricati's actually done incredibly well 
uh, and the leadership that they've brought to this market and education and webinars that they're doing to try to get people up to speed on, on the space has just been you know, extraordinary to watch. And so you think Helen is an example of someone who might have been passed over were it not for Rethink and your sort of new emergence as a, as a force in investing? Ours or Rethink Education or Impact America or some of the you know, backstage capital. I mean, we are, we are joined by a community of investors that sees this opportunity. How about you mentioned COVID? How about how about COVID? Is it helping, hurting, and how does that relate to gender and and race? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. It really came up for us, you know, as we were doing the tail end of our fundraise. You know, COVID hit, and I think what was fascinating for us is that you know, for sure, some investors just froze. Right, they turned into ice overnight. Right, right. we saw others. (laughs) I think many of us have experienced that. Others saw it differently. I said, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> you guys have been investing for years successfully in online education, online healthcare. These are the sector... They recognize really quickly that these are the sectors that are well-positioned to grow really quickly in this moment. And that's, that's been proven out. So I think actually, in some ways, COVID really helped our fundraise. And many of our companies are, are seeing that happen. Care Academy is growing really nicely. We have another company, Spring Health. You know, again, all immigrant founding team, led by a two-time founder, you know, Forbes 30 under 30, April Co. Terrific evidence-based and tons of data that sits behind their behavioral health solution. So they are providing precision mental health, you know, taking the trial and error out of mental health care and helping folks feel better faster. So there's a mental health crisis in our country before COVID started, before everybody was, you know, <laughs> witnessing devastation. <laughs> but now we're really seeing it. Yeah. Now we're yeah. really seeing it. Now every single person in this country is, is watching this, you know, all day as, as we look out in even the windows of, you know, our homes today in, in Northern California. And it looks like we're living on Mars yeah. because we can yeah. see the sun. <laughs> yeah, it's dark. Yeah. Right. Climate change, racial injustice. Uh, there are a lot Economic of stressors. Right now. Yeah, economic collapse. Yeah. Uh, and, and also the COVID pandem- yeah, pandemic. Right. So, you know, there is a increasing need for mental health. And, you know, it's a huge economic consideration for employers, right? So it's it's one of the top three healthcare costs they're grappling with. If you're, one, you know, one of the one in four and now probably more Americans grappling with a mental health issue, you know, you're six times more likely to end up in the ER. Your health claims are two to three times bigger there's lower retention, lower productivity, higher absenteeism, but getting people feeling better faster, right? Matching them with the, you know, using AI ML to match them with the right personalized course of care for them can have dramatic outcomes for that individual and for their employer. And so it's that type of ROI win-win that we're seeing build companies like Spring and they've had grown tremendously in the last two years. And so maybe... For the rest of the industry of investors who may not be focused specifically on gender and, and race diversity, underrepresented groups, what do you think the, the rest of the industry can or should be doing differently? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting. I get asked this question a lot, right? So and this is an industry that's dominated by a bunch of raging misogynists. And the answer is like, God, I hope not, but maybe. <laughs> but I think what the research shows is that you know, we're all making binary funding decisions. You're either in or you're out, right? And we all look at hundreds of deals a year and we only get to pick a small handful. And so all it takes is a really small, even unconscious, like source of bias to influence a binary decision. And when you add up all those binary decisions, that's what translates to this massive gap. 
And these decisions that are getting made by conventional investors are actually really rational. Despite all the stats I quoted at the beginning, despite the opportunity, you know, what they're doing is saying, I've made a ton of money for myself and for my investors and my firm doing my job in a certain way, looking for people that fit the mold, looking for stories and companies that fit the mold. Why on earth are you asking me to do something different than I have ever done in the past? So this sticking to old patterns is actually really rational. I think we're now, only now are we realizing as a society and as an economy, what we're leaving behind by not having more diverse voices within tech, because tech is driving the vast majority of new IPOs, companies that have massive employers, household names, these products and services that permeate our whole society are being designed and funded and run by a really small, homogenous group of people. And we're facing enormous problems. And we need more diverse creative solutions if we want to even have a hope of tackling them in our lifetime. And getting folks to sort of slow down and think about how do I pattern match against Sally Krawcheck or Rachel Carlson of Guild, right? Or Melanie Perkins from Canva, a $60 billion company, or Nicole Mustard, you know, a co-founder of Credit Karma, which is sold for $7 billion. How do I pattern match against women like this, entrepreneurs that look like this or look like Helen Adiosun as a way to do my work. And, you know, frankly, it may not be possible in conventional firms, which is why I think there are more and more startup firms that are emerging, you know, and that's, that's a really good thing in my book. Yeah. Hallelujah. And so let's wind the clock back a bit. I'd love to hear about your kind of journey into venture and into impact uh, or mission-driven focus. And I imagine over the course of your storied career, there have been plenty of times where gender has worked against you. So can you talk about your career, what got you here, and any good examples of it of it not being an advantage? You know, it's interesting. I think it's always... There are always two sides to the story, right? And it's always pluses and minuses. You know, I came out of undergrad wanting to not be a lawyer. My whole family, my parents were lawyers, my whole family was lawyers, wanted to do something in business. And so I was like, okay, <laughs> that means investment banking, which I didn't even know what that was until I was a senior and started applying jobs. And so, you know, so I was on Wall Street. I was a lowly investment banking analyst in New York, you know, working 100 hour weeks. And I definitely dealt with my fair share of unsavory characters. But I also would say, you know, I was the only female analyst in my class. So I also really stuck out. And I think I got, you know, I dealt with a lot of unsavory characters, which, you know, I would hope that women don't have to deal with as much anymore. But I, I'm afraid that's still true. But I also got taken under the wing by folks that became my champions and my mentors. And they pulled me onto deals and I worked like crazy for them. They became my champions and, and kind of helped me get from job to job. You know, one wrote my business school applications. And so, you know, you're dealing with a lot of bad, but you're also, you stand out as a woman in that field and you can get good attention as well. So it, it really cuts both ways. And how'd you get into the impact side of things? Or do you even call it that mission-driven founders? Yeah, I think I call it impact. You know, I loved banking because I loved I loved what was happening within the emerging technology space. I was starting to work on some of that M&A, some of those IPOs, this intersection between technology and, you know, old school conventional industries like media, like education, and left to go help do something more entrepreneurial, which is start up the first centralized venture capital fund at Time Warner. 
And so I was doing corporate VC, which is actually, in retrospect, really interesting training for impact investing because you're looking at deals using two lenses, right? A financial return and a strategic return in that case, which was actually, you know, great training. And, you know, went through this really interesting year getting that off the ground. I had my first, you know, the partner running, we're a three-person team, two women, one man. We were all under 30, running half a billion dollars. Some extremely lucky companies got to have me as a board observer at age 24. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Like I just, you know, I sort of cringe when I look back on those days, but I, you know, was very fortunate, you know, worked really hard, learned a ton and we were merging with AOL. And so really got to witness what was, what was that like from the inside? And I was always, you know, one of the youngest people, the only woman, I was like, where are all the women? I had all these great women in my graduate class, you know, and women in banking, but I just didn't see any in tech. And there was this one, you know, we had moved down to DC to, to be part of the AOL investments team. And I remember there was an election and I came back from voting and I was the only one in that office that had voted that day. And I was like, you know, like we have all of that. There's so many smart people in this room. We have this unlimited checkbook to, you know, write checks to improve the future. How is nobody connect to the community around us and what's happening in civil society? And so I thought, all right. And, you know, and as I look back, they were incredible people that I worked with and, you know, I'm friends with them to this day and they're amazing investors and really good people. But I, you know, I didn't feel that level of civic connection in my peer group that I wanted. And I also thought like, do I really want to spend my career, you know, putting all this blood, sweat and tears and money into these companies that are helping us dress better or watch TV in new ways or buy the jacket I saw in some sitcom, you know, that, that was not my life's work. And so I went to business school to figure out how do I marry this passion for civic responsibility for this idea that we can actually merge these worlds of social good and and venture capital? What does that look like? That was what my business school experience was for. And and I've been on that path ever since. And it worked. I hope so. It's working so far. Yeah, it's still working. standing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so looking ahead or toward the entrepreneurial community, what advice would you have for female founders and underrepresented founders in general, but particularly re- with regard to fundraising since you're an investor? Don't stop. <laughs> Just don't stop. You know, impact wants to find you. Success wants to find you. Stay the core, stay the path. And I, I think the advice is, you know, trust yourself. Um, and I think the, uh, the unfortunate hard truth is that the double standard is real. You have to be better. You have to be as good or better than everyone. And that's really, really hard. And, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of having to, you know, walk the talk and play the game. And, you know, until the entire VC community is completely remade by new and emergent funds, which I think is, is going to, you know, many years in the future. Right. There's a certain right. Of, you know, you got, you got to walk the talk. You got to play. The game. Maybe not so many years. Yeah. That's right. And so I think, you know, don't give up, have faith in yourself, know that you have to be better. You've got to check all the boxes and don't be afraid to think really, really big. Right. I think there's a lot of data. There's a woman, Donna Kranz out of, Columbia Business School who talks about, um, and there's been studies where women get prevention questions and men get promotion questions. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, you cannot control the questions that are asked of you. You can only control what you say in response. So get back to that media training and and work the pivot, right? (laughs) Respond to the question that you want to respond to and not to the questions that you're getting. And increasingly, you know, you will have a choice. 
And there are more and more firms out there who might look like you, sound like you, have lived the problem that you're making. Just know that you know you will have a choice down the road. All right, I'd like to close out with something a little more personal. We saw on your Twitter feed a photo of the do not enter sign on your door. Yes, this is like a quintessential COVID moment. <laughs> you, just, just to share a little something about yourself, tell us about that. Yes. So, you know, Rethink Impact has been a remote first firm since our very beginning four years ago. So I have been, you know, I commute down to the GSB when I'm teaching. I fly all over the country for board meetings and, and meeting with entrepreneurs. I'm meeting with my teammates on the East Coast. But, you know, for the most part, I've been working from home. I have never had to work from home with my husband, who also does calls and video calls and meetings all day long, and our two lovely boys who are five and six, who are incredibly rambunctious. Did <laughs> so, it make noise? You know, and they're, they're boys, they're crazy, they're, you know, you got to run them. And then this moment, not just of COVID, but really now that we're, you know, witnessing the impacts of climate change and seeing the wildfires and the air quality and, and you know, the four of us are literally locked in a home together, coexisting. They've learned a lot about mommy's about to go into a meeting. Right, right. <laughs> Let's use our whisper voices. And you I know? think your, so, your Twitter post said that this time it worked or something like that. And it did work. And I think the beauty of it is that, you know, part of the, um, <laughs> one of the, the silver linings of, of homeschooling is they get their tiger parents to um, teach them how to read. So my, the husband has taught both boys how to read. So not only is the sign there, but they can actually read and comprehend it, which is That's the, the big academic Perfect. point. Academic ah, I see. I get it. That they could actually read the sign. Got can it. actually Got read it. and comprehend yeah, the and sign. And read and heed. <laughs> yeah. And even my husband knocked when he saw the sign up. So ah, that was, that right. was a big breakthrough. <laughs> uh, there will be a lot more people. Uh, there, I can hear people writing those signs right now as we speak. Uh, so let's end on your personal mission. If you were to describe you know, what drives you, you know, if you were to say Heidi is on a mission to what? I'm on a mission to show it can be done, you know, that you can you can get behind these incredible female founders and build massive companies that change the world, improve problems, and make money for investors. I'm also on a mission to show that you can build a robust and rewarding and lucrative career in investing that doesn't require to check your values at the door. If anything, your values can give you an edge and a competitive advantage. All right. Heidi Patel, Managing Partner at Rethink Impact, on a mission to show that it can be done. You can get behind female founders and build massive companies. You can change the world. You can make money. And you can have a robust, lucrative career. Thanks, Heidi. Thank you so much, Rick. Thanks for listening to Mission Driven. To find out more about Better Ventures, visit us at better.vc or on Twitter at Better Ventures.